Hello and welcome to the President's Podcast brought to you by Get French Football News, your home of French football in English. In this extraordinary series, we sit down with French football's power brokers to discuss their journeys into the game and the future of the world's most successful export market, footballing talent. We're delighted to be joined today by Bordeaux owner Joe DeGrosa. Joe is an investor and notably runs Miami-based private equity firm General American Capital Partners. He purchased Bordeaux just over a year ago now in around July 2018. Welcome, Joe. Thanks for being here. Thanks, Christian. Very, very nice to join you today. We really appreciate you taking the time as ever. So, Joe, let's jump straight in. Uh, How would you describe yourself to to maybe people still getting to know you in the French football landscape in in five words? Indulge us. Ah, that's a a good one. Uh, I'd say, let's see, uh, a proud father, unfulfilled businessman. (laughs) Many challenges awaiting you, are there? That's, That's for sure. Well, you know, look. We all wake up in the morning, and, and we need a, a challenge to get us out of bed, uh, and uh, that's what keeps me going. I, I love challenges. Well, your track record in business certainly speaks for itself. Apart from the obvious recent acquisition of Girondin de Bordeaux, what have been the two successes in your business life that you're most proud of today? On, on the business side, it's, it's probably the acquisitions of uh, Jet Support Services, Inc., out of Chicago, and... Uh, the acquisition uh, or the creation of Heartland Food Corp, which we used as an acquisition vehicle to, to purchase uh, uh, 248 Burger Kings out of bankruptcy. And in both those cases, they were turnarounds. Uh, you know, it's, it's easy to buy a business that's running well and, and, uh, and then you just sort of coast. But it's very fulfilling and rewarding when you can buy businesses at, you know, very good prices, uh, turn them around and create some real value for, for investors. So, uh those are the two success, successes I'm most proud of because they involved, uh, you know, pretty um, pretty tough turnarounds that we were able to execute on. For sure. And what did these events kind of more broadly teach you about what it's required to, to obtain success? I know that's always a kind of shifting, you know, landscape, and it depends, uh, I, I presume, as well in your line of work, obviously from from industry to industry and and, and deal to deal. But uh, just just tell us a little bit about that and and, and sort of you know. People say a lot of the time it's, it's where you fail that you learn the most, but but successes can can teach you a lot too in terms of in terms of strategy, no? Oh, for sure. Uh, but uh, to your point, you learn most from uh, not necessarily failures, but challenges. Uh, you know, failures are are only the result of dealing or hitting challenges and giving up. And so, you know, sort of in the immortal words of Winston Churchill, "Never, never, never give up." And that's. Uh, been a you know a, a theme of, of mine over time and it's it's proven to uh to be successful for me for sure uh bordeaux fans i'm sure will be delighted to hear that as well as as, as we head into a, another campaign you mentioned churchill our audience may be interested to hear that that you have a particular affection for benjamin disraeli so we want to know where does that connection to, to british history originate from well, it's, it's, it's interesting. I was a student in London when I was uh, 20, uh, which was, gosh, 1985. And I happened to walk into a bookstore randomly and uh, picked a book off the bookshelf randomly. And I said, okay, whatever book I pick, I'm going to read. And it happened to be The Life of Benjamin Disraeli. And so I, <laughs> I read that book uh, once, then twice, and then probably half a dozen times, and uh, his, his life really fascinated me, uh, fascinated me and, and it resonated with me. He, he was a guy who dealt with uh, 
some very, very tough challenges. Uh, no one ever thought he would uh, be able to rise in British politics, and he, he uh, rose to uh, the highest level in becoming prime minister, not, not once but twice. Uh, you know, potentially we'll figure out maybe in the next sort of a couple of couple of years, maybe months, who your William Gladstone is, <laughs> if you are Benjamin Disraeli in the world of league and football. Hopefully that's PSG. <laughs> um, well, yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. Uh, the nemesis of uh, Disraeli was Gladstone, and, and uh, I think uh, everyone out there, including your listening audience, probably has their own Gladstones in their lives. And other elements of, of, of sort of Disraeli's life, uh, just because I find this, I find this very interesting, and we, we don't we sort of get to get to look at this every day. And the elements of, of the way in which Disraeli led in, obviously the House of Parliament, etc., that 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 you've sort of looked at and thought, you know what, might adopt some of those, obviously in a different setting. Well, you know, it's interesting. Uh, Disraeli's uh, two top qualities were boldness and brashness. Uh, I'm I'm not sure I would. Uh, <laughs> you know, think of myself in terms of brashness, but certainly in terms of boldness, I, I like to take, uh, you know, calculated risks. So I, I certainly have an affinity for that. But he was, uh, you know, sort of a larger-than-life guy. Uh, he had a, an incredible, incredible command of the English language, as, it, as I'm sure you know, uh, perhaps second only to Winston Churchill. Uh, and so, uh, you know, clearly a guy I had, uh, you know, a lot of respect for, uh, would emulate his boldness, but probably not his brashness. Yeah, that sounds wise. That sounds wise. That just, just sticking on history, because I know it's a, it's a particular passion of yours. Do you believe that the sort of study of it from a kind of academic standpoint still has inherent value today? And, and if so, what would that be? Well, yeah, I think um, uh, history, and, and for me, that really drills down to the to the lives of individuals rather than events. I mean, I'm I'm fairly comfortable talking about events, but what I most enjoy studying is is persons, uh, you know, political or or business. And you know, generally, once again, the common theme of most successful people is that they've had to deal with challenges, and you know, you see that throughout history. In you know uh, whether whether we're talking about uh, generals who've dealt with tough military campaigns, uh, whether it's politicians who've had to battle up the ranks, and uh, you know life at the end of the day is is a battle and you have to be prepared to accept challenges. So the study of history has shown me uh, that uh, you know just about every successful person out there it's, it's not been a cakewalk. Uh, you know even if you look at someone like President Kennedy in the U.S. Uh, one would say he came from a very prominent family, and he had you know, everything handed to him. And when you really drill down and see what that what President Kennedy had to go through, you realize you know just like everyone else, he had challenges. So you know the ability to yeah. to surmount challenges is uh, I think the most valuable lesson from uh, from the study of history. They also say obviously that the winners are the ones who write history, and I guess the winners are the ones who don't give up when those challenges come at them. And I guess you can very much sort of trans trans that onto the world of, of business as well. Well, you're absolutely right. I, I see you know your history because that's a line from uh, from Churchill. He said, "History will be kind to me because I intend to write it." <laughs> he did. He did have a phrase for absolutely everything. That man. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, moving on to a little bit more kind of on topic. As much as I'd, I'd, I'd like to continue talking about history, uh, you and football, or obviously as it's called in America, soccer. Where did this relationship begin? Because I can't imagine that it was the number one sport in, in Yonkers, New York, where you grew up. It was. Uh, it was a distant, distant fifth 
behind American <laughs> football, American baseball, American basketball, hockey, and then there was soccer. And soccer was a sport that uh, growing up, I, I didn't know anyone who played it until I got to mm. high school, meaning I, I was 14 or 15. Uh, it was really Pele who put the sport on the map in the United States. I, I remember when uh, we had the, I grew up in uh, Yonkers, New York, just outside of New York City, and the New York Cosmos uh, brought Pele on, and that's what really sort of brought soccer to the spotlight. But it, it never came close to, you know, the big four that I, I previously described. But it, it got on the map with Pele. So that particular player then who sort of drew you to the to the sport was Pele and, and with, with the Cosmos then in, in New York. Oh, yeah. I think he inspired uh, everyone. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm 55 now, so... You know, you're talking about the 1970s when I was a when I was a teenager. Uh, it was really Pele that that uh, we went. Wow, this guy is a is a freak of nature. He's so darn good. For sure. So, did you play sport growing up? Was that was that a kind of interest of yours uh, in kind of the more traditional U.S. sports, or or were you kind of more interested in other things growing up? Well, I was interested in sports and, and music. I played uh, basketball, football, and baseball. I was probably best in uh, in baseball. Uh, I broke uh, broke my shoulder playing football, so that was a pretty short-lived career uh, on, on the football Ouch. field. Uh, and my other passion was music. Excellent, nicely nicely balanced. Then, so so football was sort of came onto your horizon first, is it fair to say, as a sort of periphery with Pele and the New York Cosmos and then more recently again as a business opportunity? Yeah, that's a great way to, to think about it. Uh, you know, football as a as a professional sport, you know, the Cosmos sort of died out and, and uh, uh, it was first on the ascent in the U.S. and then it just sort of died out in the 80s and 90s. And so, you know, with, with the advent of the MLS, that started to put um, put the sport back on the map. Uh, it, but it was really, uh, I, I looked at football through the prism of a business opportunity rather than having any specific passion for, uh, you know, for, for the game. For sure. Now, uh, a little birdie told me, maybe this is wrong, that you initially looked into to sort of buying a club in the MLS. Was it a case of, well, one, is this true? And, and, and two, was it a case of sort of the right opportunity not arising at the time that you were looking? Yeah, I, I wouldn't shoot that birdie. That birdie is uh, is absolutely correct. We we looked at uh, at an MLS team, and uh, uh, you know, in fact, we we were pretty far along with uh, with an MLS team, and uh, ultimately we concluded that uh, I'll call it old world versus new world. Old world football, uh, European football, presented uh, you know far more value uh, in terms of uh, returns on investment. But uh, but we did take a real hard look at uh, at an MLS opportunity. Would that have been a new franchise, or was it uh, purchasing an existing one just out of interest? No, it's actually an existing one. Yeah, because that's that's not the trend, but that's 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 very interesting. So as you say, you sort of uh, moved across uh, across the pond, and, and we'll get to that in a minute. But I just want to uh, you know kind of continue by by focusing a little bit on on sort of yourself and 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 getting to this point. It's very common for successful people in the world of business to have a specific mentor who really gave them new perspective and, and guided them during the early days. Yours is, is clearly Bob Glazer. So tell us about him, and, and, and do you look through 
the relationship that you established with him as a sort of lens for understanding maybe even, I know it's a bit of a stretch, but maybe even understanding how successful football managers nurture young talent, even in Ligue 1? Yeah, well, first of all, I actually had two mentors. Uh, the first one was my father, uh, and uh, I was very close with him, and, and uh, I learned the fundamental principles of not only business, but how to deal fairly and honestly with people from him, first and foremost. And, you know, as I went on in, in my career, uh, I had the opportunity to get, get into the business of private equity, and that's when I met Bob Glazer. He was my first boss in the world of private equity. And uh, he was, you know, the the, uh, the next guy and one of the few people I've ever come across who shared the same value system as uh, as my father. He was a very principled guy, and he was a great teacher. And, uh, you know, I thoroughly enjoyed working for him. He was a very tough, tough boss, uh, but mm-hmm. a very fair guy and uh, really taught me the ropes. So, uh, you know, I learned a lot from him. I think it's interesting that you, you mentioned your father in the first instance because, it's, it's something we, we, we're hearing a lot, you know, putting these series of podcasts together that really doesn't matter almost sometimes how ambitious you are, what your ambitions are, or even your kind of natural talent, whether it's in business or, you know, more specifically within a kind of football negotiating space. If you don't have that right set of values instilled into you that allows you to, you know, socialize in the right way with people, deal with people in a polite and, and kind of acceptable way, you don't get very far. And and, and I think that's, that's really quite pertinent that, that you bring that up. Um, did your father ever have any interest in soccer? No, you know, my, my dad was, was probably the smartest guy I ever met with, but, uh, you know, he had a lot of, uh, a lot of tough breaks in life. He was a World War II veteran, uh, and, uh, began work on Wall Street and got into a kind of a, tough accident in the 1960s, which left him in a wheelchair. So, uh, you know, I think a lot of his ambitions in business and life went unfulfilled. But having said that, uh, he was a terrific father, a terrific teacher and mentor, and he always kept a positive attitude. And I think this this idea and theme that I talked about earlier of, of never, never, never giving up, you know, I probably got from him now that I think about it, which was, uh, you know, he just kept going when, when he had to. He sounds like an incredible man and, and also an incredible inspiration. And I guess, you know, as you say, you know, it, it's potentially testament as well to some people in a business perspective struggle to keep up that constant source of, of kind of motivation of, of, of sort of that, that fire still being lit in terms of getting up every day and achieving more and, and succeeding more. But you must be in part driven by, as you say, your kind of father's you know, very unfortunate, unfulfilled sort of potential if you like or the other things that he wanted to achieve uh, and and i i presume you know, tell me if i'm wrong but i presume that would have also certainly been and, and continues to be a real driver for you today yeah absolutely it, it is a driver uh you know i'm mindful of of the fact that uh you know he had some unfulfilled ambitions but having said that he, he had a wonderful life uh at least as best he could and for me i i consider myself lucky every day that i don't have the uh you know, the physical challenges he had to face. And so, you know, I kind of feel like I, I've got a free pass to accomplish some great things, and it would be a real shame not to uh, not to give it my very best. Absolutely. So let's focus more into into Bordeaux now, uh, Joe, if, if, if we will. And I guess the first question off the bat is, how does a, sort of an American 
serial investor with an expertise in private equity, kind of more focusing before uh, in a collection of industries, kind of traditional entertainment, aviation, as you mentioned, before with jet support services, and then obviously fast food as well, as we've also discussed a little bit in terms of the, the Burger King franchises. How did you end up investing in a league football club? Well, the, the opportunity was presented to me by a, by a friend, Hugo Varela, and I'm, I'm pleased and honored to say Hugo is my partner today in Bordeaux. Uh, and, uh, but, you know, he managed to lay it out uh, in a way I could understand, which is that uh, football or sports, you know, provides content for this great big machine we call the Internet, uh, you know, where, where there's an insatiable demand for content and I'm sure you're seeing it in your business. Uh, and sports provides, you know, that, that fodder, that raw material uh, for content, and there's a massive increase in demand for content. And so sports provides that, and soccer, uh, the sport which I think will be the, the fastest growing and most consumed uh, from a media perspective sport in the world, it's a great place to be. And then the question is, are you going to be in the old world or the new world? And that gets into the issue of, uh, you know, relative value. And, you know, I do tend to think of things sometimes through a Wall Street prism and relative value is a concept I grew up with. And uh, Hugo made a compelling case that the values were, were in Europe and not in the U.S., at, at least at this point. So, so Hugo, Hugo came to you in this process. Did you two explore the MLS venture before or was that a separate thing? No, no. Um, Hugo is really the guy who opened up my eyes to, uh, to uh, why football was a good place to be. And then, then all of a sudden, you become very opportunistic. You hear, okay, there's an opportunity in the U.S., there's an opportunity in Europe. And, and in fact, we looked, before Bordeaux, we looked at an opportunity in, in La Liga uh, and uh, ultimately passed on it uh, when, uh, when Bordeaux became available. But, um, you know, we, we decided that we were going to be in the, in the world of, uh, of football. Uh, the means or tactical execution of that in terms of which club or which league to get into you know, we knew it would be partially opportunistic and partially would be driven by, you know, relative value. And we were very fortunate to ultimately have the opportunity to uh, to meet the folks at M6 and negotiate for the acquisition of Bordeaux. I just want to touch on touch on your sons. As you say, you're a very proud father at the, the, the very beginning of this podcast. I'm reliably informed by our social guys that, that uh, a son or two or, or maybe more are followers of, of what we do at Get French Football News. So they're clearly, you know, interested and engaged in what you're doing with Bordeaux. Have they, did they ever have some sort of input in telling you that this would be a great thing to do? Or has it very much sort of been you and, I guess, Hugo's baby from the start? Well, from the, from the start, uh, you know, it was a business decision, business decision to get into the football business. Uh, the, once again, the tactical execution, which club to buy, for example, and we've, we've looked at other assets outside of clubs, by the way. We acquired a company called SoccerX, which is the uh, largest uh, trade show for soccer around the world right now. So it's not just clubs, but anything yeah. tangentially related to the sport, we, uh, we decided to take a keen interest in. But in regards to, to my sons, you know, one of the things that surprised me was how well they understood European football. To me, it was absolutely brand new. And for them, it yeah. was something that they, uh, they already understood, which, which kind of surprised me. I, I didn't realize how much exposure they and, and their friends and people in their age bracket, uh, how much exposure they had had to European football. It was absolutely amazing. 
had they been playing sort of sort of video games like FIFA, for example, or was it they'd followed they'd followed their own clubs even before this opportunity came up? You know, it's interesting. When they were young, it was it was really you know EA Sports FIFA driven, and that was yep. sort of a bridge watching games on TV, which you know are, have been more readily available with each passing year. Uh, but really, EA Sports put uh, European football on the map for uh, a whole generation here in the U.S. That's really really interesting. Have you tried FIFA, Joe? Are you are you any good or, or yet to yet to take that challenge? <laughs> I, I no, I've taken the challenge. I'm absolutely horrible at it, but I, I enjoy playing it. I, I don't play it that frequently, which would explain why I'm so horrible at it. But uh, it I really enjoy watching it. Uh, it's it's incredible, and it's it's gotten more lifelike with each uh, with each passing year. So it's uh, it's fun to watch. Yeah, and I presume you don't play as Bordeaux then, if you're not very good. No, no, they they yeah, they yeah. haven't let me on the field yet. <laughs> um, we've discussed Hugo, who obviously came to you came to you with the with the project, and obviously, as you said, you've, you've considered a number of options. I've seen you say in, in multiple interviews that the acquisition of Bordeaux was about a historic club first and foremost, but more than that, it's about a region that really does grab headlines for other additional reasons in the United States and, and elsewhere across the world, notably, obviously, for its, uh, for its wine. How important was the kind of idea of investing not just in a football brand, but also in kind of the, the overall community and, and surrounding area, too? Well, it, it was very important that we, we bought into a club that um, – had a bit of a moat around it, and by that I mean had a loyal fan base, uh, you know, that uh, would continue to be loyal over generations. And Bordeaux certainly fit that profile. From an external point of view, meaning outside of Bordeaux and perhaps outside of France, we uh, love the fact that Bordeaux was a a name that resonated. And so, as I think, there's a battle in the U.S. and in and in China, for that matter, for mindshare. And the English Premier League uh, yep. has been winning that battle, uh, but there's opportunities for clubs, you know, to to gain some of that mind share. And so when you start with a club whose very name is recognized, in this case by virtue of the wine, it gives, you know, puts wind in our sails as we go out to to promote the club. And that's one of the things that uh, we we felt we wanted to be able to do for any club we bought to promote it in the U.S. And uh, Bordeaux gave us uh, gave us the ability to do that. Absolutely. Now, drilling down a little bit more into the process of actually acquiring the club, I'm keen to know how critical Alain Yassine was in negotiations initially with the former Bordeaux owners M6, because he certainly did a very, very good job, which is what has been a historically very tricky French football financial watchdog, the DNCG, in, in pushing the deal through. Where did he fit into this process alongside you and Hugo? Well, first of all, uh, Alain did a masterful job. I think he's a, he's an excellent banker uh, who has an intuitive sense for uh, when things are moving in the right direction and quickly picking up on when things are moving in the wrong direction. And so I, I think he did a masterful job of, of bridging, you know, a communications gap in, in, some, uh, uh, in some cases between us and M6. I mean, when, when you have a willing buyer and a willing seller – you, you still don't always get to a deal because of misunderstandings, and uh, and I think Alan, uh, you know, has one of those rare rare skills that he can 
help bridge those misunderstandings in a way that everyone feels respected. So uh, I think he did a, a fantastic job. How good at the moment is, is your and Hugo, Hugo's French? I'm sure it's a, it's a priority of yours, but it's always complicated to, to learn a language that, that you might not be fluent in from the off. Uh, well, in, in terms of the language, uh, Hugo is uh, uh, far ahead of me in, in terms of learning French. He's uh, conversant in French now. Hugo's spending probably 80% of his time in Bordeaux these days, and uh, I spend about a week a month, uh, and I've never been uh, I've never been a great student uh, uh, of languages, or I guess folks could argue any subject, but uh, languages come <laughs> difficult uh, to me, so it's it's been a challenge for me. But I, I keep trying. Yeah, and it's it's also one of those things where it's it's such a nice sounding language that it's you know it's not one of those things where you wake up and and feel like oh this is such a such a pain to sort of try try and speak perhaps. Um, right, but I'm sure you'll get. I'm sure you'll get there. Right, there, there are only a few words you really need in football, anyway. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> to get along. That's... Uh, <laughs> for sure. Yeah. Now, to, to kind of the slightly more 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 uh, serious note, there was obviously a lot of media attention around the acquisition when it occurred and when it started to become rumored to be about to occur, um, and I think there were a lot of reasons for this. One was it's a historic club that had been in the hands of MCs for a really long time um, and, you know, had, had really started to falter in general as a project after nearly a decade ago since, you know, any sort of significant success the club had had. A lot of kind of French outlets were quite critical with regards to your supposed outlook on the club. Uh, sort of the way in which it was purchased, i.e. through the receipt of loans, you know, and, and, and all these sort of, claims that it bordered on a sort of stock market mentality. You know, I personally get it from a kind of a, a business perspective because France is the most successful exporter of talent in the world at the moment. Uh, take a look at the World Cup win. Take a look at this summer alone, about 300 to 400 million euros is going to be made by, by Ligue 1 clubs just in this summer in terms of export sales to other countries. So it does sort of necessitate this this potential ability to sort of buy cheap in terms of player acquisitions and then sell high from a kind of a mentality point of view. But I think this is a good opportunity, Joe, to just sort of reassure fans that you know that's not really the case and and, and I think we're very here to keen to hear your response on that because I think it's been a little bit, you know, perhaps unfair at the moment in terms of the way in which the kind of French press has, has made assumptions without actually, you know, getting your side. Well, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you this. If, if one takes a step back and thinks about uh, what motivations of owners are, uh, it's to create franchise value. I mean, it's ultimately you, you create most of the value, you know, when, when you sell the club. It's not when you buy and sell players. No one, no one pays you, uh, you know, a multiple on your player transfer business. They pay you a multiple on the value you've, you've created, the inherent franchise value. So while some clubs are, you know, will buy and sell players, and let me take a step back and say, when you look at the French league, and you probably know the numbers better, much better than I do, but collectively teams run a, a you know, massive deficit, which is plugged yeah. by player sales. And so the the reason why there's net sales of players outside the French league is to plug the, the massive deficits uh, generated uh, in aggregate by French teams. Now the good news is, 
as the media rights value uh, increases over time, you know, those losses become less and less. You know, holding salaries as a percentage of revenues constant, let's say, those losses are going to be yeah. less and less, and there'll be less and less of a need to export talent. But it's probably, you know, my guess is five to ten years away before you're going to see the French League, uh, you know, at a break-even exclusive of, of the purchase and sale of players, or the sale of players, I should say. So it's, it's a driver for clubs to cover deficits. In regards to Bordeaux, you know, the good news is our plan is to create value. And you mentioned our capital structure. I, I believe we have a conservative capital structure. We have very strong partners in uh, King Street on the equity side and Fortress on the debt side. Uh, and we all understood going in that we're trying to create uh, a valuable business. And we all understood that we're looking at losses you know, for the next two or three years. So we all went into it with eyes wide open. We'll accept those losses. Uh, and, you know, the, the plan is to, uh, to create uh, franchise value. And you create franchise value ultimately, uh, we believe, by having a good, strong team uh, married to uh, a, uh, an academy system that helps you grow talent. And, yeah. you know, this concept of, you know, and I don't mean to pick on PSG, uh, but they've got a lot of money and they throw it around. Uh, they have a different business model than, than we do. Uh, they have different aims at uh, you know, both the, uh, the management level as well as the shareholder level. Uh, but you know, in our case, uh, you know, we want to build a club from the ground up. It's an exercise in, in developing homegrown talent and showing the world that the best players in the world come from France, and we'd like to keep a lot of them in Bordeaux. And what we're doing now uh, is basically developing that talent, you know, sort of akin to fine wines, just to borrow an analogy from, <laughs> from Bordeaux. Uh, you know, it's, yeah. it's going to take a, a couple of years before the, the vintage is right, but we've got some, some young players that we put on the field. Uh, we're testing them out. They're getting beaten up a little bit out there. I mean, they're still kids yeah. going up against grown men. Uh, but, you know, we're toughening them up, but we're surrounding them with some talent now. So that, you know, two, three, four years from now, I think we're going to have a very powerful squad. And obviously you mentioned King Street, um, another part of, of, of the kind of French media furor, basically, you know, has been this, this kind of equity structure. You mentioned with King Street owning 86% of FC Bordeaux Holdings Limited. Just to, just to be clear, a couple of quick questions. You, you don't contain an ownership stake within, the, or within, within King Street of, of any kind. No, no, not at all. It's uh, uh, King Street owns uh, uh, approximately 86. We own approximately 14. King Street has some investors that they brought in on their side. But it's very important to understand. I, I serve as chairman of Bordeaux. Yeah. Uh, we uh, we basically split votes 50-50, uh, but I have a veto right uh, on uh, on any major decision. And the good news is we work very positively and constructively with King Street. They're very good partners. And, uh, you know, uh, all I can say is I, I'm hard-pressed to think of better partners out there. So we, we went into this having extensive discussions on what our motivations are, on what our objectives are, and we were in alignment on some key fundamental points before we got into partnership with each other. And I think that's critical. We... we uh, we knew exactly what we wanted to achieve. So when we face issues, you know, do we agree on everything? No. But do we work positively and constructively together? Absolutely. And 
and so far it's been a great partnership. I think that's a really reassuring answer for Bordeaux fans in that actually, you know, you as as you said, as chairman, do have the kind of power to make decisions or stop decisions. Uh because I think for any club, especially in France, it's very important to know who, who has that power. So I think, you know, thankful as well that you you've cleared it up for us today and, and I'm sure so will the Bordeaux fans be. Um the the final thing really is obviously you mentioned Fortress and and, and you mentioned King Street. How does the sort of agreement work in that? Is this a, is this a long-term uh, commitment for, for, for both King Street and Fortress? Uh, are they really you know, fully aligned with you in terms of, as you were mentioning, this, this project of wanting to kind of build at least medium-term you know, sort of to long-term value for this club? Well, you really have to think very differently between Fortress and King Street because King Street is our partner, our equity partner, and we share a long-term view, uh, specifically a long-term hold view. We committed to the city that we'd hold at least uh, four years. Uh, we publicly stated we plan to be there five to ten years. We think that's the right, uh, you know, right time frame. Fortress, on the other hand, is a lender. They look at yep. things very differently. They provide capital. They want it back with a return. Uh, they've been great uh, partners with us in, in working together, but they have different motivations than, than we in King Street. And so you can rightly envision at some point Fortress being out of the deal and yep. with King Street and GACP continuing forward. And, you know, as you probably know, I publicly stated, regardless of our holding period, we're caretakers of the club. I mean, the club's been around since 1881, 138 years, uh, and it's going to be around a lot longer than, than I'm, I'm going to be around, that's for sure. Uh, and so, you know, our job is to ultimately uh, return the club to whomever the next, quote, owner is or caretaker, it's probably a better word, uh, in, a, in a position better than we found it. And that's really our goal. Uh, I'd be very disappointed if we, uh, if we made a lot of money but, uh, but let the fans down and didn't deliver a, a winning squad to them. For sure. So just to, just to clarify from from that, uh, there's a just like a kind of a more traditional business arrangement. There's a there's a probability possibility that Fortress go on and sell that debt to another entity at any other point. Uh, well, I'm not sure they'd resell it. We'd probably just refinance them out at some point, or we would renew our relationship with them. I I, I don't know at this point. What I do know is a lender has a fundamentally different mindset in relation to its borrower than an equity partner like King Street. That, that's, that's really sure. the only point I wanted to make. Well, let's move on now to, to Bordeaux. And since you've been at the club, it's been a pretty action-packed sort of 12 uh, months or so with a lot going on off the field and obviously your changes at board level and at staff level really coming into play. I want to kick off with the fact that you've been vocal on Twitter recently of your frustration regarding some miscommunications with the local authorities in Bordeaux uh, and some necessary work uh, that needs to be occurring with the Matmut Stadium. It's sometimes very complicated in France, especially when you know new parties come in and have to find a working relationship with the local authorities who like to be as hands-on as they can, generally speaking, with the sort of football industry. So I'm keen to get your thoughts on, on, on how those sort of working relationships with the Bordeaux mayoralty have gone so far 
and, and whether there's been a contrast between the time, obviously, with Alain Juppé, who's now left his post, and, and the current mayor, Nicolas Florian. Well, uh, first of all, there, there's always, um, you know, there, there's always challenges. There, there's so many issues that we uh, need to get through with constituents uh, and partners. So we consider the city of Bordeaux our, our partner. Uh, and every now and then there's, you know, there, there's bottlenecks. And, and in terms of my Twitter comment, I was just trying to help break through a bottleneck and bring, uh, bring uh, attention at the highest level to the fact that we were coming up on a new season and we needed their help. And uh, by yeah. the way, uh, Nicolas Florian couldn't have been better. Uh, I've had the opportunity to uh, get to meet and spend a little time with Alain Juppé and with Nicolas Florian. And, you know, I, I describe it this way. Alain Juppé is, is, uh, is, is a larger-than-life figure, uh, and I mean that in, in a good way. Uh, I never felt like I was meeting my, my best friend but I was meeting someone that I respected <laughs> and, and was looking out for the best interests of the, of the city, uh, and I respected him for that. Uh, in the case of Nicola Florian, although we, uh, Alain Juppé spoke English, so it made communications easier, yeah. I, I feel much more of an affinity for Nicola Florian because I, I kind of view him as a friend of, of the club, uh, and he really has the, the best interests of the club and the city at heart, and he's a guy we can work with. Uh, you know, we can have those sort of blunt conversations on a, on a friendly yeah. basis, and, you know, I, I don't feel like I'm, I'm you know, speaking to the French Parliament. I'm speaking to a guy who wants to help solve a problem. So uh, I, I really like him. But I've always had tremendous respect for Alain Juppé, and it was a true pleasure meeting him. Yeah, an absolute pillar of, of French politics. But it sounds great that uh, this new relationship has, has allowed you to have those tough conversations that you sometimes need to have as a project like this has the completely understandable growing pains that, that you go through as you implement a new project. Um, I want to get your thoughts more generally on, on your arrival into French football. It's a magical, quite unique world in the European and continental football landscape. Has there been anything that's particularly surprised you from the nature of the game played to how transfers are conducted to other intricacies that you might not have thought would play such a big role when you initially made the acquisition? Well, you know, it's, it's very funny. Uh, I studied uh, uh, statistics, finance, and accounting uh, when I was in school, and, and I've always, you know, started life, my business career as an, as an accountant, as an auditor. So I'm, I'm very much used to looking at things through the prism of, of numbers. And I was surprised, the big surprise to me was uh, how emotional uh, things can be in the world of sports, particularly when it comes to player transfers. And I remember last year, as we came up in the final 48 hours of, of uh, the Mercado, uh, at that time we didn't have full control, nor did M6. We had to work in partnership. And I'd say a lot of you know a lot of decisions were made very emotionally. And that's not a criticism of M6 or us. It's just sort of the nature of things. So. Um, I guess that was one big takeaway that, uh, that there's an emotional human element uh, to to this business that doesn't exist in m many other businesses. I mean, I, I mentioned earlier I've been involved in uh, you know two successful turnarounds. Um, you know, one's an insurance company which is all about numbers. Uh, the other one was the burger business, which, by the way, is also all about numbers. Believe it or not, and then you get into the world of sports and it's very emotional, and everyone has a view. Uh, and everyone likes to share their views. 
So, uh, you know, it's it's a bit of a balancing act. I guess the other, the other difficulty is that, you know, if you're if you're thinking about buying and selling a, a franchise, uh, whether it's in the in the burger space or, you know, as you say, dealing kind of in insurance and, and, and looking at business decisions there, here it's quite simply a, a considerable part of the job is buying and selling footballers who most fans think of as almost untouchable in the sense that they can't be much like normal people, but deep down there is a person in there. Uh, and, yeah. uh, you know, right. so you've, you know, you've come across this, you know, a lot in the last 18 months, these are people. And, and often they are driven just as much by things that anybody else listening out there would be driven by, you know, where's my family when it comes to a transfer, um, how close or far away can I be from, from, from this certain place? Am I going to get homesick if it's someone leaving the club who's who's kind of grown up there from a from a youth academy perspective? And I think it's something that that fans still don't uh, appreciate as much as as much as they that maybe they should. And it's potentially almost certainly, in fact, not their fault because of the way in which media can sometimes sensationalise transfer sagas, etc. Um, but but speak to that a little bit. Has that also been a, a sort of a realization for you as well? Absolutely. Uh, you kind of hit the nail on the head. As, as far as players are concerned, you know, when you're thinking about buying a club, you just sort of think of players in, in a block, right? There's players, and that's part of the business. But when, once you're immersed in, you know, the day-to-day aspects of the club, you realize in some cases you're dealing with 18-, 19-year-old kids uh, who have yep. been forced to, to be men overnight. It's, uh, and and it's, it's really, you know, emotionally challenging for a lot of these young guys. And, uh, you know, so we have to be sensitive to that. The other extreme is you get someone like, uh, you know, Jimmy Breon or Koscielny. The, these are guys who are, they're grown men. They've been in the league. Uh, they've been playing. They've been in European football. They, they understand the rules of the game on and off the field. And you can have a much different discussion with them than you can with these young kids. And then there's everything in between. So, um, yeah. you know, I think the, the good news is we've recruited – uh, guys at, at um, you know, the, the, the head of football level, Eduardo Messia, by way of example, Paolo Sosa, our coach, who's a phenomenal coach and, and a phenomenal teacher, who, who really understand uh, how important, uh, you know, the psychology and the psychological aspects of their players are. Obviously, you touched on the current manager, but there has been a fair amount of movement in that space. Obviously, Gustavo Poya is quite dramatic exit from the club just as you and M6 were still sort of working together through that that final transfer window and I guess uh, correct me if I'm wrong but I guess that sort of the way that entire thing played out was far you know not really 100% in your control at the time yeah you know unfortunately all that occurred uh, you know when when M6 was uh, you know was was steering the ship? Uh, you know, there's yeah. two sides to, to every story. Poyet was uh, you know was 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 excellent on the field. I think everyone acknowledged and recognized that. But you know, sometimes personality issues between people uh, you know come into play, mm-hmm. and it was just it was just unfortunate. The individual that you have had, obviously, the unfortunate experience of parting company with um, during your short tenure so far as owner is the Brazilian uh, individual, Ricardo, who came in in a quite unique role as a sort of more traditional manager rather than a head coach. 
the kind of manager role to fans listening who aren't aware of it. It adopts the sort of more English model from the early 2000s, kind of in the image of someone like Arsene Wenger, formerly obviously of Arsenal, who had considerably uh, more control over not just what goes on on the pitch, but then personnel and, and also a larger say sometimes on recruitment as well. Obviously, Joe, you had to dismiss Mr. Uh, Ricardo, but you've been nothing but respectful and polite about him in the media. What went wrong that you felt you had to take this decision and, and what will your lasting memories of your time in collaboration with him be? Well, a couple of things. First, R- Ricardo is a, is a wonderful human being. Uh, and, uh, you know, sometimes you, you deal with people in life who are, who are just jerks. And Ricardo was just the opposite. He, he came in mm. in a very tough situation. Uh, you know, uh, we, we asked him, you know, to, to take on a club that uh, he didn't have a lot of time to, to get up to speed on. And, uh, you know, he faced some, some, you know, personal physical challenges. So he, he did everything that, that he could to, to, to try to be successful. Having said that, you know, we, we just noticed, uh, besides the, uh, the performance on the field, we, we just didn't see the inspiration needed to, to get our players out of a losing mindset. And, and sometimes you just make a game-time decision and you say, you know what, it's time yep. for a change. And we, we just made the decision that it was time for a change. And, uh, but uh, as I've said in the past, and I continue to say, Ricardo was a very nice person, and we were, we were disappointed it didn't work out. And... Uh, but he was, you know, the first to say, "Hey, it's not working out. Uh, if you need to make a change, I understand that." So he he couldn't have been more of a gentleman about it. So he did he come to you guys initially and and say, "Look, I understand we're underperforming, and 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 I understand if you feel like you need to make a change." Yeah, a- absolutely. He was he was very open that way. Uh, uh, he really, you know, this is a guy with 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 a lot of experience. It's not like he didn't know. The, the situation the club was in, and uh, you know, so we had had those conversations in, 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 in an open way with him. I, it certainly, you know, was something that he brought up to us. We had a dialogue, and ultimately, we had to make a change. Well, you know, our, our very best wishes to him as well uh, in 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 the future uh, if he does continue to to pursue management as well. Uh, whether it's back in Brazil or, or anywhere, a true gentleman uh, in Liga, and and we absolutely love people who yeah, are respectful to everybody. Whether it's obviously you know kind of the owners, the players, but also you know he had he was very open with the media as well, and and, and a particularly nice yeah. guy. So we wish him all the best. Um, moving on, obviously Paulo Souza has replaced him, uh, an individual with the experience across the globe in managing football clubs. Was he always the priority candidate, Joe, or was there a sort of longer process undertaken whereby you considered multiple candidates for the role? Well, the answer is uh, very simple. When we realized we needed to make a change, we started to compile a list. And Paulo, initially, uh, uh, we weren't sure if he was available, but he was on our very, very short list. And, and once we found out that he was available, you know, he went right to the front of the line. Uh, you know, I, I got to meet him. Uh, just phenomenal guy, and, and you can tell a guy who, uh, you know, who was uh, looking to teach uh, and instruct and, and lead a team in a way that uh, that I had never come across in my life. He, he truly enjoys teaching the sport, and we knew as part of our strategy that I referenced before, you know, we'd be we'd be looking to uh, 
you know, to bring up young players, and we couldn't think of anyone better as a, as a teacher and a coach than Paolo Sosa. So it was a major coup as far as I'm concerned to get Paolo to join us. Absolutely. Someone who's had experience globally and, and a very interesting name to add to an incredibly talented league at the moment in terms of the quality of managers throughout the division. Did you also consider uh, sort of going back kind of on the French route? Um, that has been something that historically Bordeaux has, you know, had a great sort of history of fantastic French managers, obviously the most recent being Laurent Blanc, um, just sort of interesting to get a sense of, of whether that was also part of your thinking. Well, as, as you probably know, we, we had uh, e uh, extensive discussions with uh, Thierry Henry uh, back as at the time that we recruited Ricardo. So we've, we've always been open to bringing on board a French coach. Uh, I guess the prism through which we look at it is, looked at it and continue to look at it is, uh, you know, nationality is, is a secondary consideration. We're looking for the best coach, for sure. uh, you know, given our strategy. And so uh, Paolo was our man. Uh, but, um, you know, we, we, we certainly considered French coaches in the past, and, uh, uh, you know, there, there's some great ones out there for sure. You mentioned Thierry Henry, which makes it rude of me not to ask a little bit about that process. What was it in the end that, that meant that that didn't quite work out, Joe? I think um, I think there was you know really no bad intentions on either side. I think there was um, uh, a lot of it was driven by the scope of, of responsibility and uh, how much say uh, he he might have in uh, in player selection. Um, I think our view was uh, you know we'd like him to have a seat at the table, uh, and he wanted to have more than a seat at the table. And by the way, we we under doesn't make him a bad guy or us bad guys. We just had a fundamental uh, difference of views as to, uh, you know, the role of a coach. And, um, you know, we, we agreed to part ways as friends. Sure. Well, let's move on now because you've made some really exciting changes, I think, to the backroom staff over the last nine to 12 months. And it's obviously been a, a slower process in terms of integrating these individuals. You mentioned Eduardo Masia, who has come from Leicester City. That seemed to take a little bit longer than maybe everybody would have liked at the club, but you now have your man. What are the most significant changes that you and your team of Bordeaux have made in the last 12 months that you believe will reverse the club's fortunes as what is, frankly, a former giant but has been sleeping for multiple seasons now in the mid-table? Well, I think that, um, you know, on the, on the football side as opposed to the commercial side, uh, my, my partner, Hugo, I think has done a phenomenal job of getting, you know, the, the, the three key positions in our, in our mind filled. One, one is uh, the coaching position with Palo Sosa. You mentioned Eduardo Macias, head of football, uh, which includes overseeing uh, player transfers. And another important position is... Uh, uh, Suleiman uh, Sisse, who is running the academy, mm. and uh, you know that is, uh, you know, what we think will be a secret weapon. Uh, uh, Suleiman came from Monaco, uh, did a fantastic yep. job there, and uh, you know we think Bordeaux is well positioned geographically to uh, source some great talent out of out of the region, and uh, so we felt it important to to get a world class guy overseeing. Uh, you know, overseeing that effort. So I think we've got those three key positions filled, and uh, you know we're in a rebuilding phase, 
and uh, you know we're executing on our plan. As we record this, we're about 10 days away from the closure of the summer transfer window. It's probably the thing on every football fan in France's mind at the moment. Um, and I think what has been notable is that apart from two individuals that you brought in, uh, the club has pursued an almost exclusively free transfer signing strategy in this summer transfer window with Enoch Quateng, uh, Mexa, and others. Obviously, Raul Benalova comes in as well from uh, from AC Milan. Um, is that a, is that a sort of conscious decision, Joe, or is it that actually the profile of player became available uh, on a free transfer basis? Well, first of all, uh, it's really a combination of two things. Uh, the, the profile of players we're looking for did uh, come about on a, on, a, on a free transfer basis. Uh, at the end of the day, if you look at what's happened to, to our salaries, and everyone tends to focus on how much you spend in transfer costs, our, our salaries uh, have gone up considerably. Uh, and ultimately, it's a trade-off, right? You can pay you know, 10, 20 million for a transfer, and have X salary, or you can pay a guy double or triple that as a uh, you know as a free agent. Uh, and so we we have been investing. It's just that our investment is is taking the form of much higher salaries. But this also gets to a point I made earlier, which is we've got some very young talent, and ultimately we believe they're going to play a, a more prominent role on the field. But they have to develop, and so we didn't want to get into a situation where we're spending you know, tons of money in, in a transfer situation only to have that position potentially filled by a younger player down the road. So, you know, there's, uh, you know, we have to take a holistic view. We start with what, what Paolo's looking for. Uh, we try to give him everything he needs to, to succeed. Doesn't mean we, we necessarily get there, but we're certainly trying to do that. But we're also mindful of what uh, our medium to long-term vision is. Absolutely, and I think someone who encapsulates what you're saying there is obviously Yassine Ben-Rahou, who has been outstanding in preseason and today signs a, a contract uh, that will secure his future at the club. That yeah. actually, beyond everything else, Joe, those sort of moments that maybe everybody else from the outside looking in doesn't look up and think that's fantastic, those moments must give you some of the most, you know, most amount of satisfaction from a player side. No doubt about it. Uh, it it's, uh, there's satisfaction there, but, there, you know, there's also, uh, you know, I'm, I'm mindful uh, and get a lot of feedback from fans as to, uh, you know, their view of what we're doing. And, you know, sometimes it's frustrating because we can't lay out, you know, all the particulars of our strategy. Uh, you know, to me, it's like being in a war and telegraphing to the other side, you know, where, where we're going to move our, our tanks. Uh, you know, we, we have to keep certain things close to the vest. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm laying out from a high level our strategy, but the tactical execution, you know, I view as sort of a trade secret uh, in many respects. For sure. And uh, so it's a little frustrating when, when, you know, we can't communicate the, the full vision and plan. But, um, you know, from a high level, we're, we're rebuilding the club, and I think we're doing it the right way. And I think uh, my partner, Hugo, is one of the very best at executing on, on a plan. One more on players, and I really do appreciate the time you've obviously given us today, Joe, and just got a few more questions coming up. Explain to us how Bordeaux convinced Arsenal central defender Laurent Koscielny to come to the club, because this is, you know, make no two ways about it. This is a real coup, and it wouldn't have mattered which side in Ligue 1 were able to land in. He, in fact, 
had very considerable proposals, even from clubs playing in the Champions League this season, notably in Germany. So just explain to us and, and, and the fans more broadly how you guys pulled this off, because it's a, it's a fantastic signing. Well, uh, you know, it, it really starts uh, with uh, Laurent wanting to come back to France. And we were not the only club in France that uh, he was considering. But certainly Bordeaux, I, I, I have to believe, was at the very top of his list. But by no means was uh, Bordeaux at the exclusive club on the list. Uh, but I think it started with his desire to, to get back to uh, uh, get back to France and, and specifically Bordeaux. He's got uh, you know family in and around the area, and I also think you know this gets back to the discussion we had earlier about uh, young players versus you know more mature players. Koscielny uh, is thinking about his future, and, and rightly so, for when you know he's no longer playing the game. And I think Bordeaux presents um, you know a great place. For him to stay in the in the football business for you know for decades to come, and so we would welcome someone of his talent uh, and skill and experience to, to help us with our plan with the club, you know after his playing days are over. And that's one of the things we we talked to him about, and uh, and I think it resonated with him. And it sort of transcends transcends you know um, you know salaries and compensation. It's about you know what is the vision yep. for you and your family going forward. And I think we made a a very strong case that, uh, you know, he was coming to a home. He wasn't just coming to a club. He still remains the French footballer with the most niche purchase, personally. He's not, he's not, not, not bought Lamborghinis, not watches, but he owns an accordion factory in the north of France, which is a fantastic little uh, niche purchase there. I think it's probably the most original I've heard in the French football world. Um, I presume he then... By, by the way, I would, I would just say... I was just going to add to that, you know, he, he saved three or 400 jobs in doing that. Uh, so I think it's a real yeah. testament to his character and the type of person he is, that he's not out, you know, buying Porsches and Lamborghinis, but he's thinking about, uh, you know, his fellow human beings and how he can make life better. Yeah, I mean, this is also the reason why this transfer was such a big deal, not just in France, but also in Europe, Joe, because Arsenal fans over the last sort of eight, nine years knowing this player is the most professional. And then obviously he takes a very dramatic decision not to go on the tour to the USA. Um, yep. And I think there is a, there's an enormous amount of, of anger still actually in, in English football about his departure, which is one way of you knowing that you've done a, you know, you've, you've, you've got a coup here. Um, but I think, you know, it's, it, 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 it must have been a difficult time for Laurent to that period because it was a long, it was a long negotiating period for him and, and for your guys as well. For, for sure. And, uh, you know, I think he, he made the right decision for, for uh, not just himself, but for his family. I mean, he's really thinking long term. And uh, it takes, a, you know, a high level of maturity to really, to really think that way. And so we're, we're just, just delighted to have him in Bordeaux. Excellent. In January, you tweeted that your team's defense had been, quote, horrible and unacceptable. And in France, we're not really used to owners being so direct and, and criticizing their own players. But I can understand the power of social media in that regard, too. And it's a nice way for you to be very direct with your own fan base. And it allows you also to send messages, not just to fans, but, but players alike. Is this something, the sort of live tweeting type uh, type thing, that we can expect more this season from you or, or not? 
I, you know, look, I, I think it, it'll be a measured approach. Uh, hopefully it won't be a, a Trump-like approach to tweeting. Uh, <laughs> you but, said but it, I, I didn't. <laughs> uh, well, I, knew, I, I sort of had a, an idea of what you were thinking, though. Uh, the, uh, you know, the, the idea is, you know, it's, it's a medium to communicate a message, but one needs to be very careful in, in how one communicates that message. Uh, if it's done too often or done too cavalier, cavalierly, you know, it'll, it'll have negative consequences. So I, I always hope that, uh, you know, when those tweets go out, uh, on balance, it has a, a positive effect on, on the team. And at the end of the day, it's not about me. It's about the success of the team on the field. For sure. Now let's look to the future, Joe, if we will, and discuss what's next really for Bordeaux and, and for the future of Ligue 1, which is so critical to, to your mission and, and really our mission as well. In a lot of the sort of uh, pitching materials by GACP in terms of, you know, one, what did this opportunity represent? And also interviews you've given and other colleagues of yours have given uh, part of the project. There's a lot of mentioning of sort of digitization and internationalization opportunities. And I'm keen to know what that is going to look like for Les Girondins de Bordeaux in the next 12 to 24 months. Well, first of all, let's talk a little bit about the, the uphill battle we have um, with, with the French League, uh, at least in regards to the U.S. And, and China, which are, you know, the, the two biggest markets and the two markets with, with the greatest potential. The English Premier League and, secondarily, La Liga have a major head start. Uh, yeah. uh, and, uh, of course, we've got a language uh, challenge that we need to overcome. Having said that, uh, you know, I know Frank McCourt, uh, you know, is very interested in, uh, in, in taking Marseille to the U.S. Uh, and, and to China, for that matter, building the Marseille brand. We want to do the same thing, but we can't do it in isolation. It has to be part of, uh, you know, the overall success of, uh, of French football. We, we've been, you know, we've worked with uh, DDAKO at the league uh, and... Yep. Uh, you know, uh, he had a vision to set up this tournament, and, you know, you really have to start somewhere, and, and we did start somewhere. I know there was some criticism as to the lack of attendance and the lack of coverage, but it's a learning experience. you got to start somewhere. And so, you know, Absolutely. we want to be part of the, of the success of, of the league, and we understand, you know, we're willing to pay our dues to make that happen. I think uh, U.S. ownership of a French team helps capture some mindshare in the U.S. that it otherwise wouldn't capture. And that's, uh, you know, that's part of my job, and, and I know Frank McCord views it the very same way. For sure. For, for listeners who, who, who might not be aware, Joe there is uh, referencing when he talks about the, the friendly tournament that happened, the D.C. Games, which occurred a couple of weeks ago in Washington. It was a friendly tournament that involved four Ligue teams, Saint-Étienne, Montpellier, Bordeaux, and Marseille. Um, more broadly now, Joe, looking kind of to the future of Ligue 1, keen to get just your sort of own personal perspective. How do you see the competition shaping up this season? Do we think there could be a genuine title race this season, or, or do you tip PSG to simply blow the competition away again? Well, I think there is going to be a, a dogfight, um, at least more so than, than perhaps last year. I think with each passing year, you know, clubs are getting stronger and stronger. You know, look, PSG is the is the 800 pound gorilla in, in the room, right? So we have to be be mindful and and 
uh, and understand their role. And, and they do play a very important role for the league, right? They're, uh, they're the most prominent club and the, and the club that gives uh, you know, the league more credibility than it might otherwise have. Having said that, you know, I'm, I'm hopeful there's going to be a, a real, real dogfight. Uh, we, uh, as you know, played against uh, PSG, uh, you know, at the end of last year, and we, uh, we, we broke their unblemished record. We managed to tie them. And, uh, yeah. you know, my, my view, and I continue to main, maintain this view, that on, on any given game day, we can be and should be competitive with anyone. And uh, we should have the respect of, uh, of clubs and, and the league, for that matter. And that's, that's what we're striving for. You mentioned, obviously, the importance of PSG in terms of the kind of international draw and outlook of Ligue 1 outside of France and, and the Hexagon. How important do you think Neymar specifically is to future, uh, excuse me, future growth opportunities for Ligue 1 as a whole? He really has added some star power, hasn't he? He, he certainly has added some star power. Um, and, you know, you've got Mbappe as well. Um, you know, I think it's important to keep these, these big names uh, around to the extent uh, uh, we can do that. Uh, but, you know, also mindful of the big money that gets thrown around for guys like Neymar. So, uh, but, I, but I think that it's in the league's best interest to keep uh, guys of that caliber within the league if we can because it gives enormous credibility to, uh, to each and every club in the league. Now, PSG have, over the last half a decade, executed one of the most uh, financially impressive marketing and global sponsorship strategies that we have seen, specifically, you know, less so kind of from the conventional sponsorship deal side in terms of those sponsors, but the collaborations that they have worked on with Nike and Jordan that has made just that PSG shirt an international obsession. Um, PSG are now in the top 10 clubs worldwide in terms of shirt sales a year. How is Bordeaux going to sort of bridge that gap in the next three, four, five years? Well, you know, uh, I'm not at liberty to get into too much detail, but I'll, I'll uh, summarize it at least by saying we're taking a real hard look, uh, you know, at who our kit partner is, uh, I think that, uh, you know, we're, we're proud of our sponsors, but, uh, you know, over time we're going to be looking uh, for more international sponsors uh, whose, whose brands sort of resonate perhaps at a larger level. Having said that, we're, we're very proud of, of our current sponsors, and our job is to, to make those brands successful, and I view that uh, particularly as one of my jobs. Uh, but, you know, taking a step back and looking, um, you know, part of, uh, part of that sponsorship and branding uh, or that branding exercise in general creates enormous franchise value. So, you know, we're looking at part of our investment is to invest in building the brand and, and ultimately, you know, uh, doing some rebranding and some modernizing of our brand. So we, we understand the importance of that. But, you know, right now, as we sit here today, our focus is on the next 10 days in this transfer window. And then when the dust settles, we'll, uh, you know, we'll get back to some of those larger objectives. Absolutely. You mentioned uh, that you see sometimes a transfer window a little bit like a war. Can Bordeaux fans expect some tanks to move in the next 10 days or so? Well, that's, that's a very interesting way of putting it. We, we, are, uh, we are in the throes of, of a number of discussions. 
uh, and it's uh, I'll liken it to uh, you know to a chessboard where we're you know every time we move a piece on one side it affects the outcome on on a different side of the board. So you know I can tell you we're we're having regular uh, detailed discussions about what uh, you know what we can do for the club over the next ten days. Fantastic stuff, Joe, and really appreciate all your time and, and fantastic insight today. Finally, for young people out there who love the, gla- love the game, sorry, but, but miss out on making it professional when they're trying to sort of work their way in as a player, but still want to be involved in the game somehow, maybe on the business side, what advice would you have for them in this ever-increasingly interconnected world? Well, I'd say for for those uh, for those uh, folks who have who have played the game and understand the game may not have made it uh, you know professionally, uh, but do understand the game. There's a tremendous opportunity to to get into the uh, the sports side of the business on on the coaching side. Uh, there's always a need for for great talent on the coaching side, and and that's. Uh, yeah, it's almost like the like the twelfth man on the field, right? At the end of the day, yeah. you you need a you know a coach uh, can can make or break a squad. And what I, my advice to young people is, if um, if they want to stay on the sports side, you know, go out there, get your coaching license. You know, just coach, coach, coach. If you want to be on the commercial side, got to go back to school or finish your schooling. And then uh, be willing to roll up your sleeves and take uh, an entry-level job, probably for next to nothing, to prove what you're worth. And uh, you know, just work harder than anyone else there, and you'll succeed. That's fantastic. And a final word for the Bol- for the Bordeaux fans. Obviously, we're two games into a season. It's been a difficult start, absolutely. What would you say to the fans to close out this episode of the President's Podcast? Well, look, we we would love to have won our first two games. Uh, we lost one and we tied one. But, you know, we're still very very early in the season. Uh, you know, Koscielny just joined. Uh, we've had a couple of players who, uh, you know, uh, who have been on the sidelines. So I, I've not, you know, in my view, we've not put our, our best team on the field yet. I think when that happens, it's going to be a, a, a very strong squad. And, uh, you know, we're rebuilding the club. And as I said earlier, we have some young talent. And uh, you know they've got to get beaten up out there and 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 take some wounds uh, so that they can strengthen as players. And uh, but you know I I think the best is yet to come. I think we're going to have a good season. Fantastic stuff. Well, that concludes this episode of the President's Podcast by Get French Football News, your home of French football in English. We thank you, Joe, very much for your time today, and I hope you enjoyed it. I did. Thank you very much. I really enjoyed it. Brilliant stuff. Uh, for all you listening at home, there's a lot more like this coming as we cross France to speak to the most important men and women within the game to discuss the future of this division and get insights across all the matches and all of the goings-on behind the scenes as well. You can follow us on Twitter if you're new here, at GFFN, and don't forget to visit our website, www.getfootballnewsfrance.com. We'll see you next time. Au revoir.